me. Well, as I say, we're doing um, something a little different this morning. From time to time, uh, sermons occur to me, and uh, I prepare them, I put them in my drawer, and then I I decide when is a good time to preach them. Well, this is uh, one such sermon, uh, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. So briefly, for one week, we will break from our study in Romans. Now hear the word of the Lord. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we have appoint, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And say uh, the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, uh, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch whom they sent before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful again for your word. We thank you for uh, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and that was inscripturated under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And uh, we praise you for Acts, just as we praise you for Romans. Uh, but we especially pray now, having read your word, that as the ministry of the word is carried forth through preaching, that, O oh, Holy Spirit, you might be equally active. Not exactly in the same way. My words are not infallible. Uh, let us always remember that. But Insofar as they are faithful and applicable to our own day, faithful to the word when it was when it was first written and applicable to our own day. Oh, God, we pray that it might be uh, something which is truly edifying to the church. Amen. As I was just indicating from time to time, I like to preach what I call. uh, And I think I got this expression from Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Preaching and Preachers, an occasional sermon. Uh, so uh, I think that means on certain occasions you preach uh, a certain way, but I mean it more in the sense that I do it occasionally. And when I do this, I'm seeking to emphasize a certain point, something that uh, you might say the Lord has impressed upon me or something that necessity has got me thinking about. I'm not even sure how exactly to articulate it, but some uh, burden in my soul, and, and even I might say a sermon which has occurred to me, uh, which I am eager to share with the church and, and simply looking for an opportunity to do so. Uh, so this is, as I say, uh, something which we do only from time to time. We are still committed to preaching through books uh, expositionally. The, the, the only potential downside to that, uh, which is immediately resolved by the freedom to break from it at, at will, is that there may be a point which, uh, as I say, I'm concerned to emphasize, but which I know in the course of preaching that book, Will not be. Uh, however, at the same time, recognizing this, I, I realize that there is also a danger. This danger is, is resolved by preaching expositionally through books. But the danger is simply that uh, the pastor is in such sermons free to share his own mind, more or less. And so, again, such sermons must be rare. But when they do come, as I say, there is some need I'm wishing 
to address, in particular, some pressing problem which, in the Lord's providence, is facing the church. And at the moment, uh, I would say that it's a twofold problem from my perspective, from where I'm standing as the pastor. And that is our, a lack of deacons. In the Lord's providence, we have one deacon at the moment. But I would also say, very humbly, that it is our whole view of the office of the deacon as a congregation. And so that is the twofold problem that I wish to address, a lack of deacons and our view of the deacon. And let me stress again, David, as I've already said, uh, this sermon is meant, uh, if it's a rebuke to any, it's not to you. It's an encouragement to you, but perhaps a certain amount of rebuke to the rest. My purpose in preaching this is to address this twofold problem, to help us as a church to begin to view and to value the office of deacon rightly and scripturally, and then by God's grace and with much prayer, Begin, even today, to look out, as we find in this passage, to look out for men to assume this office. But let me begin by noticing, uh, as a kind of summary of chapters 1 through 5, as we arrive at chapter 6, the uh, portrait of the early church. And there's six things I want to notice about the early church very briefly. The first uh, thing that I would notice is that the early church was evangelical. In the sense that the early church and the book of Acts was written as a testimony to this fact. It's an account of this single fact, and that is the bright shining light of the early church. The, the amazing gospel witness that this early church had. It was blazing through the world at tremendous speed. And uh, it was impossible not to notice the early church. If, if I've said many times, and it's certainly true, there is hardly an institution with less relevance in the modern day than the Christian church, at least in this land. Certainly wasn't true in the early church, the days of the early church. There was a tremendous relevance. It was, they were catching the eye of the world. And again, Acts was written to tell us of this, to give us a, an account of her tremendous witness and of her amazing success. The early church was also apostolic uh, in the sense that they were thinking of Acts chapter two, verse 42, that they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles in the same way we sharing that conviction are devoted to their teaching is found in the writings of scripture. It's the same conviction. We are committed to that teaching that our teaching is ever arising from scripture as in the days not only of the early church, but of uh, the Reformation, where that conviction was being recovered and which we are still, by God's grace, holding on to. Also, uh, it was apostolic in the sense that we find that the ministry of the apostles was central, especially uh, to, 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 to uh, the earliest days, which we're reading of in Acts chapters 1 through 6 uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the ministers of the early church, the earliest days, were the apostles themselves. They were the ones who were doing the preaching and the teaching, uh, which explains uh, what we later find in chapter 6. The early church, number three, was ecclesiastical. And by this I mean uh, that they were committed to one another. They were a church. They were an uh, ecclesiastical organization. They, they were committed to one another as one body. We read uh, this again and again. Uh, if you read chapters 1 through 5, you will notice the radical commitment to one another, the radical commitment to meeting one another's needs. Uh, far more important than, than, uh, than any other bond in their life was now the new bond that was formed between Christian brothers and sisters. 
And so they were devoted in a radical way to gathering together under the teaching of the apostles, uh, meeting together, an ecclesia. That's what the church was. That's what the church has always been. They were so sold out to this idea that they were meeting daily. You could not exhaust their desire and their hunger, not only for the teaching, but for Christian fellowship. Again, this is just a portrait of the early church. The early church, number four, was pneumatic, which is to say uh, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit was upon her in a mighty way. The Spirit was resting upon the church. All alike possessed the Holy Spirit. We find them in chapter one, praying the apostles in the upper room, praying for the power of the spirit to descend upon them. We find them again and again throughout the book, praying for a new and fresh outpourings of the Holy Spirit. And again and again and again and again, we find that is the prayer that's being answered. Christian fellowship, Christian people full of the Holy Spirit, Christian preaching, which was full of the Holy Spirit. Thus, it was we read again and again uh, a preaching and a gospel testimony that was full of boldness and power. That is what happens, beloved, when God's people are praying and God begins to answer the prayer for the Holy Spirit. Again, not just the preacher, but the people alike, all together as they were gathered. And so it was not only power that was evident in the preaching and through conversions, but a power that was evident in their Christian living. All of these points, you notice, intermingle. Powerful gospel witness. We are not surprised to discover that the early church number five was growing. Daily, we read. Uh, that they were uh, they were being there were those being added to their numbers. It's a kind of refrain throughout the book of Acts, especially in the early chapters, which was, of course, as a result of the prior four points. The church, when she is like this, beloved, is bound to grow. It is an inevitable outcome of of these things. The world is bound to take notice. People will become interested in what it is that brings us together as Christian people. Also, when God, in his power, we can say, is gathering his own, as he indicated to the apostles he would, as they went from town to town. My elect are in this city. I will bring them to you. But the sixth thing that I would notice is that she was diverse. This is something that was radically new in the life of the people of God. This is, in fact, the primary reason uh, the problem arose Uh, Not just the vast multitude, number five, but also number six, the fact that Jew and Gentile were suddenly worshiping together. And this was something that uh, created a certain amount of friction in the early church. And I suppose it always does in some way. And uh, and some of those old animosities they had before, even under the new life and the power of the spirit, they brought into the church. And so at once it was a wonderful picture, but it also brought with it its own problems. Now, uh, just to sum up that point before I come to the problem which emerged in chapter five uh, or chapter six, excuse me, I I want uh, to be fair to the church in her current form and existence and and acknowledge uh, as sometimes in the preaching of Acts, uh, this point is, is not made adequately or clearly enough that what you find in Acts is not the normal state of affairs. Now, this was an unusual period in the life of the church. It's a wonderful period. There's much that we can learn about it, but it is not the normal state. Even uh, even in the New Testament, we find the church taking a more settled form. 
especially in the pastoral letters. Uh, the, the church has been gathered. She's been organized formally into a body. And now she needs direction, uh, directions to govern her more, her more regular settled life, which is more, again, to be fair, what our existence now looks like. But the danger, once you've arrived at that side of things, is that you've lost sight of whatever got you there. Uh, the, the earlier, uh, more exciting and admittedly more loosely organized periods in the life of the church. When things are really happening, that lead to the more organized and settled form of her existence. And I would argue that we're guilty of that very thing. That these, especially the first five points, the church was evangelical, apostolic, ecclesiastical, pneumatic, and growing. These are things that are instructive to the church in every age. And so while I would acknowledge that the church is not meant to live in a continual state of revival, we would wish for that, of course. But in God's providence, he's never allowed that to happen. Revivals are sporadic. This was an enormous revival, just as the Reformation was. But it is not the norm. That being said, it it remains the constant prayer of the church. And even in days uh, such as our own, where it would appear the church far from growing is actually on the decline As I say, there's much that we can learn from the church in such periods. Well, as a second point, we see that a problem arose. There was a great deal of uh, success, uh, amazing success in chapters 1 through 5. You almost uh, get the sense that nothing could go wrong. And then you come to chapter 6 and you discover, indeed, that something could. And so uh, prior to that, you have this picture of power and progress. There was, admittedly, in chapters 1 through 5, one humanly speaking problem, although it's clear that they didn't consider it a problem, and that was persecution. Uh, they were they were arousing uh, the interests of the world. The rulers were taking notice and they were beginning to persecute the church and even throw uh, some of its members, especially the apostles in prison. But it's clear when you read that, that they didn't view that as a problem. But they viewed it uh, once again as a clear testimony of the fact that things were happening, that God and the spirit was on the move. This was an an evident testimony to them of that. And so we find them actually singing and rejoicing. It was rather a sign of her success and her power. But don't think that means, and chapter 6 serves as a forceful reminder, that it certainly didn't mean that the early church had it all figured out. Indeed, as I said, uh, there was a, a lot of turmoil as a result of things happening so rapidly And we could even say, in a sense, that the early church was a church like any other church, a church even like ours in this sense, that while on the one hand, she was conscious of the fact that God was blessing and prospering her in certain ways. Nevertheless, at the same time, which she was discovering, as every church must discover, that God was also testing her and bringing her through trials and seeking to bring uh, the best out of her through trials. Seeing, uh, as with Abraham, what was really in her heart. Well, here was the problem. We read in verse 1, not only as a result of her, uh, her growth, but also of her newfound diversity, Jew and Gentile coming together as one body. Now, in those days, uh, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Admittedly, given Everything that I just said about the early church, that is a seemingly trivial matter. And yet in itself, it is revealing 
and instructive uh, concerning the life of the church. For we know it is often the most trivial matters that put a spoke uh, right in our wheels and stops us in our tracks. And yet at the same time, I would argue it wasn't all that. Notice I said seemingly. It wasn't all that trivial because in, in, in actual fact, what we discover, and if we had more time we could analyze, I don't want to do this, I'll just assert it, that all of the points that I mapped out, all six of them were directly interfered with as a result of this single problem. So, uh, such that uh, at this very moment, as a result of this seemingly trivial matter, the whole work and all of the progress and even the witness of the church was brought into jeopardy. Credit to them for realizing this and addressing it with due urgency, which we find them doing. They don't simply say, well, time will heal this wound. That's the more common procedure in the churches, but they addressed it immediately and with due urgency. The solution they formed, again, gives you a sense of the looseness of the situation in contrast to the later, more settled form of her existence. The solution to the problem was to form a new office. We need men to fill this new office, which they as yet did not call deacons. Although when you when you come to Philippians or when you come to uh, first Timothy chapter three, you find the office of deacon named by name. Well, at this point, it didn't even have a name. And yet they were on the fly forming their ecclesiology, their doctrine of the church. They were making adjustments as they went. And as necessity compelled them to do that, that has a bit of a strange ring to it uh, at first. Although if you have a broader picture of the Bible and uh, and it's teaching on the church in mind, perhaps not. Perhaps it's not so strange because, well, do you remember that Moses did the same thing? Moses confronted with some necessity uh, under the advice of his father-in-law, Jethro, did exactly the same thing. Presented with the need that he had to devote himself to certain things in his inability simply to do everything himself, though he tried. He, under the wisdom and the providence of God, formed and introduced the office of the elder in the Old Testament so that he didn't have to do everything himself. And so it's exactly the same thing here, only it's the second office. It's the deacon constrained by necessity. These early Christians uh, under the authority of the apostles, formed the deacon, just as uh, Moses or Israel under the authority of Moses had the elders. Well, at this point, I want to notice something practically, reflecting again on something that is common in the life of every church. And we notice it here in the early church. Again, it's a beautiful picture of what the church should be. And yet there was a tendency that was present there that I think is always present in every church. And it's a, a tendency we actively have to fight against. And that is the way things tend to get neglected. That's what we read here. The problem was just that something was getting neglected, something that ought to have happened, but that wasn't happened. And that the ministers of that church were simply unable to tend to. Because they were so busy preaching. And yet, do you notice what the expectation was? And let me just notice that this is the common expectation in every church in every age. The expectation was, as busy as the, the preachers were, let the preachers do it. Let the apostles do it. That's what Moses faced. And that's what these first Christian pastors faced. They were simply overwhelmed by the needs which were pressing in upon them. But again, do you notice how each of these 
uh, these two groups face the problem, Moses and the apostles. Uh, again, under the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, they did so by delegating. And in the case of each, by forming new offices. I'm not saying that we go that far, but the lesson of delegation is a good one. So that they wouldn't be crushed by the burden of it all. You see what the apostles had to say in verses 2 and 4. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Again, think of how active they were in preaching daily. Even being thrown in prison uh, for this. Did they really have time to settle the accounts of the church? Verse 4. We will give ourselves to con- uh, continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. You see how they're, even as they're forming their ecclesiology, they're expressing it. Their own sense of calling. These were men who knew their mission. They knew what it was to be called as preachers. It was not a mission which they chose for themselves. It was one given to them by God. Every bit as much as it was for Moses. You remember how reluctant Moses was, by the way. And so for them, it would be sheer disobedience to do anything else, to neglect the ministry of the word, to serve tables and to count money. But they were also aware of something else. And that is they were not meant to do everything. We read twice in verse 2 and verse 5 that this was a multitude How was it that they were expected to do everything when there were so many people? Could others not be found to do the work? The answer is, of course they could. And they knew they could. The truth is, with with so many members, it is surprising that anything ever gets overlooked in the life of the church, given the church's abundant resources of manpower. And yet, returning to that tendency, it seems always to be the case that things tend to get neglected. But what we notice in the last place with regard uh, to this uh, this problem is that uh, it having been resolved, I had thought of only preaching verses one through six. But verse seven is so crucial because we read then that is following the resolution of this problem. The word of God spread and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. In other words, the hindrance being removed, the church could go on with her work and the, the amazing progress that we read in chapters one through five began again uh, to unfold. The church was being tested by God and they passed the test. Let me read what Matthew Henry says about this. He says the advancement of the church hereupon, when things were thus put into good order in the church, grievances were redressed and discontent silenced. Then religion got ground, verse 7. The word of God increased. Now that the apostles resolved to stick more closely than ever to their preaching, It spread the gospel further and brought it home with more power. Ministers disentangling themselves from secular employments and addicting themselves entirely and vigorously to their work will contribute very much as a means to the success of the gospel. But this is a sermon about the deacons. That was the solution to the problem. We have a broader picture of the church and what the office of the deacon uh, enabled the church and the ministers to do. But what can we say about this office at the, the outset of its formation? Well, my interest is not to notice the manner of their selection, although that is really uh, the thing that's being stressed here. And I will have something to say about this in the, in, in the conclusion of the sermon. But what I want to see is what we can notice about the men themselves and the office they assumed. What can we say, in other words, about the first deacons? There were seven. We know them by name. 
And the first thing we see is how they were appointed as helpers and servants of the church. And in particular, uh, they were appointed in order to assist the ministers. They met the need expressed in verses 2 and 4 that uh, the minister simply couldn't do everything. There was too much administration. There were too many needs. All these people were gathered. How could you uh, leave it simply to a handful of men to tend to it? They were servants and helpers of the church, number one. But we especially notice, number two, the kind of men they were. Verse three. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Equally, uh, we read about Stephen in verse five, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And yet I would notice that what is being stressed here about these men that assume the office at its outset, verses three and five, is very often the point which is overlooked when the church is seeking to select men for office. It is assumed, sadly, but commonly, let uh, a a, a lesser spiritual sort of man assume the office and let the more spiritual types be elders. But do you see the fallacy, beloved, given the text which is before us? What is it that they said and what is it they looked for? Let them be men full of the spirit and wisdom, full of faith. In other words, the men that they were looking for were the best sorts of men, the most spiritual, the most godly, the best possible men you can find. Let them serve the tables. Let them assist the preachers. And let me also notice that given the nature of the church in those days, how easy this was. You see, when the church is like it was in the days of Acts, it is not difficult to find seven men who are full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. How easy it was in those days. But do you see the kind of office it was, given the kinds of men they were seeking? That the office of deacon is above all a spiritual office, which it required above all that spiritual men assume it every bit as much As the elders. And so you notice how they were given this most practical task, which they were not above doing in the least. They were to manage the money. They were to wait on tables and so forth. And yet, in many ways, this is the most amazing point by far. Given the sort of men they were, are you surprised to find out they did far more? Far more than wait on tables. Which is, again, as I say, the thing that I find so amazing If you just keep reading past verse 7, what you discover in chapter 6, the remainder, chapter 7, and into chapter 8, there's a kind of testimony of the first deacons. We read about, well, again, their testimony. It is a tribute to their life and their work. And two of them in particular, two of the seven, Stephen and Philip, and what a mighty testimony it is. We read, if you just go on immediately past verse 7, and I'll just read these verses, but it takes you straight to the end of chapter 7. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Did you think that would be the next verse, given your view of the deacon? Well, that's the next verse. Then then there arose some uh, from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from... Uh, Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Do you notice that again? 
Men full of the spirit and wisdom. And, they, and then it occurs here. He was testifying to the truth full of the spirit and wisdom. So much so that they were not able to resist it. He was engaged, in other words, actively with uh, the witness of the church in evangelical activity. He was evangelizing. And do you notice what comes after that? What is the result of his, uh, let us call it, his spirit-filled gospel witness and his testimony to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Well, it cost him his life. The testimony of Stephen, the first deacon, beloved, is one of martyrdom. And it's a glorious picture. I I, I can only refer you to it. I don't have time even to summarize it. But chapter 7 is a testimony to the martyrdom of Stephen, the first deacon. What an amazing testimony. Martyred in glorious fashion. After him we read of Philip. Therefore, chapter 8, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. How actively engaged these first deacons were. It's amazing to read that. And I find tremendous inspiration when I read this and when I think of this. The testimony of the first deacons. But I'm also greatly humbled. I ask myself, as a Presbyterian minister, what do I know of the office of the deacon? And what do I know about what it is God can do with a deacon who is full of his spirit and wisdom and zeal for his church? But that leads me now to become practical and to offer these practical exhortations to the church. And that is then to ask you the question I was just asking myself. And that is, do you see, simply from the testimony of the Bible, what it is God can do with a deacon, with a man like this? You say, here was a man appointed to wait on tables. But look at what God did with them. We do not read in Acts chapter 6, 7, and 8 of the tables they served, though we know they did. But of their glorious ministry and their glorious testimony. And even again in the case of Stephen. The highest honor any man can assume in the kingdom of God. That of martyrdom. The point is so incredible. That many having realized it. I was even taught this in seminary. Though I reject it to this day. Many having realized it. Reject the fact that Acts chapter 6 is in fact the institution of the office of deacon. This must be another office some uh, are prepared to say. These were not deacons after all. But I cannot say that. I will not say that. I would rather say to that point that those who say it simply are not prepared to think of a deacon like this in this broader way. Our view, I'm saying, is too impoverished. What we discover when we consider the testimony of Acts chapter 6 through 8 is that these were deacons who were preaching, men who were full of the Spirit, full of evangelistic zeal and wisdom, men who were being martyred. And I would just notice that the church never functioned so well and so gloriously as when she had deacons like this. Now, am I saying, I have to clarify myself here, am I saying that the deacons ought to be preachers? I am not. I am not saying that is included in the office or the job description of deacon. That is not their calling. But what I am saying, and I will say this with equal clarity, is that perhaps they could if the need arose. Just as we find these men doing here. 
Perhaps in days of revival you would even find the deacons testifying, preaching, full of the Spirit and even being martyred as the first men to be martyred. Do you see the point, beloved? The point is just that God can do anything with a man who's full of the Spirit. And when such men are deacons, then you are aware of the possibilities. He is able to go even beyond the constraints of his own office. But then do you see, as a second practical exhortation, how ready these men were to answer the call? We read only that they were selected and so they were ordained, just like that, called upon and answering the call. Again, the church functioning as she should. A problem arose and how eager they all were to fix it. But here's where the rebuke starts to come out a little bit. Where is such eagerness to be found today? Is it possible, beloved, that there's no real desire in this church to meet the need? Too often I found that Presbyterian churches or or in Presbyterian churches, we act as though the office of elder is all there is. It's the only office. The The only office that anyone shows any real interest in, especially the young men with potential. Well, I'm reminded on this very point of something that David Stevens, Elder David Stevens, said at the last session as we reflected on this problem. And what he said is that he wished that every man in the church was a deacon, or at least that every man in the church wanted to be a deacon. But sadly, the reality is that very few do. Very few of you desire to be a deacon. I've approached many of you, And the sad testimony I give from this pulpit is that I've been turned down almost always. But do you see what I'm telling you? It's that we lack deacons by our own hands. It's our own doing. Is it possible that we do not have but seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom? Would it not be easy then to nominate this very Sunday a whole slate of deacons to be ordained at a later date? And if we do, why are they not deacons already? Is it because we did not think they should be? Or perhaps because they did not think they should themselves, thinking perhaps the office of elder suited them better? And we as a congregation, did we not think to look for such men? And did we not think to make them deacons? Did we imagine that there is no need for such an office as this? Perhaps then we have our answer for why things are as they are. But the last practical exhortation is this. Which has to do with our view of the office of deacon. And that is that I would notice to correct our ecclesiology. That the office of deacon is connected to the office of Christ every bit as much as the office of elder. And while it's true in 1 Peter 5 that Christ is called the chief shepherd in relation to his under shepherds, the elders. It is equally true that in the Gospels, Jesus Christ repeatedly called himself, especially in Mark chapter 10, the chief servant of others. And he made his ministry and his life and his death and his service the basis of. Of the example that the deacons and every Christian was to follow. Let your example be. Or or let let, let your life be. An emulation of this example Jesus is saying. And so the deacon is merely one. Who is patterned after the ministry of Jesus Christ. And who models this constantly to the church. 
Deacons are called. I'm reading from our book now. Deacons are called to show forth the compassion of Christ in a manifold ministry of mercy toward the saints and strangers on behalf of the church. To this end, they exercise in the fellowship of the church a recognized stewardship of care and of gifts for those in need or distress. This service is distinct from that of rule in the church. Again, the key phrase, they're called to show forth the compassion of Christ, who is, I would add, the chief deacon. But as I close, let me just offer three concrete proposals. The first is hold the office in esteem. Learn to value it. Get a scriptural idea of what the deacon is in a Presbyterian church. Value it greatly more than you presently do. Because I tell you on the authority of scripture that God values it. In fact, when you read in 1 Timothy 3, the blessing to be obtained on behalf of faithful service, it is not spoken of with regard to the elder, but of the deacon. It says this, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice the standing that they have in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the church for their faithful service. Value the office. Realize what God can do with the deacon. Number two, concrete, second concrete proposal. I say to all the men in the church, be such men that have called upon you are ready to answer the call. Even now, stand in readiness. Prepare yourselves to be called upon. Act as though, though you do not hold the office, act as though you were deacons already. And number three, I say, uh, along with the early church and what the apostles said in Acts chapter 6, be on the lookout for such men, men who are full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit and of faith. We are ready even now. The time is now. And may God in his grace supply such men in his own time, which my prayer is very soon. Amen. And let us uh, together come to the table.